haven't even decided yet how to reveal to you today's topic. Let me think. <laughs> now I'm waiting for you to like pull a bunny out of a top hat. I know. Okay, well, basically, this is, I hope not anticlimactic. It's kind of related to something I talked about in season one, but we're going to zoom out a bit. And instead of focusing on one area of this industry, we are going to talk about women's sports. Okay. Women's sports in general. In general. Yeah. It's okay. extremely, extremely meaty. So we're kind of going to do like a perforated jump through history and then focus on some key themes of what the fight to be able to play sports looked like and what sports with women in them now look like and the discrimination people are facing hmm. and maybe some productive ideas for going forward. Amazing. Let's do it. To start, I kind of wanted to just clarify that we're going to be focusing on like the last 150 years in the US because I had to narrow it in some way (laughs) and couldn't talk about, you know, like all of human history and movement, you know, (laughs) ancient games. Right. No, it's just it's not in scope today. It's not. (laughs) Even though Odysseus did talk about girls playing ball in the Odyssey. So we have reason to believe women and all humans have forever been like deeply invested in moving their body and playing with teams. Yeah. But yeah, that's also, I guess, another thing to kind of caveat is that when doing deep dives like this, especially into the last 150 years and this very like colonialist, patriarchal, westernized history, we don't know what we don't know. And by that, I mean, like, we don't know how many women were doing what behind closed doors. We don't Mm -hmm. know how many women whose journals or own accounts, if they were even literate, were erased. We just don't know how many Mm -hmm. women have been erased from history. So I like to think that the history of sports is like even more robust than we can imagine just because of our constant male as default assumptions and polemic Mm -hmm. history writing. (sighs) Story of my life. (laughs) Exactly. Nothing like Harry Styles in 1D to (laughs) illustrate our male as default point. (laughs) But I thought that In addition to that beautiful song, we would have a quote from Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women about this type of male as default thinking and the things we might be missing as we, with our own biases, look back at history and fossils and cave paintings and graves and this and that. Mm. So I was hoping you could read this quote for us. Okay. For over 100 years, a 10th century Viking skeleton known as the Burka Warrior had despite possessing an apparently female pelvis, been assumed to be male because it was buried alongside a full set of weapons and two sacrificed horses. The grave contents indicated that the occupant had been a warrior, and warrior meant male. Archaeologists put the numerous references to female fighting in Viking lore down to, quote, mythical embellishments. (laughs) But although weapons apparently trump the pelvis when it comes to sex, they don't trump DNA. And in 2017, testing confirmed that these bones did indeed belong to a woman. The argument didn't, however, and there. It just shifted. The bones might have been mixed up. There might be other reasons a female body was buried with these items. The resistance is revealing, since male skeletons in similar circumstances are not questioned in the same way. Indeed, when archaeologists dig up grave sites, they nearly always find more males, which is, quote, not consistent with what we know about the sex ratios of extent human populations. 
God damn. I'm sorry. That was so long. Sorry. When I was typing it, it didn't feel that long. No, no. I, I, I say God damn like, what the fuck? Why, why is it so hard to believe? I know. Why do archaeologists know the Viking lore includes female fighters mm-hmm. and then still when confronted with a female skeleton say, no, no, that must be male. Those stories were probably just mythical embellishments. Yeah. The mental gymnastics. I know. So we're bringing a lot of bias to our retrospective on women in sports, but hopefully we can today disrupt some of that bias and some of those assumptions that we make. As we love to do. (laughs) As we love to do. But okay, let's jump back in time and start with some milestones in the fight for women to be allowed to play sports in the first place and Mm -hmm. to be sort of guaranteed the same funding and investment in these sports programs. Mm -hmm. So in the late 19th century, just right off the bat, we have examples of rampant hypocrisy, racism, classism, etc., exemplified by prevailing attitudes towards women in sports. For example, there were women and girls who would play basketball and for years they were A, not allowed to steal the ball, and were B, divided into three sections of the court, and they had to stay in their little, like, assigned areas. And the point of those rules was to make sure there wasn't too much contact or too much exertion, because there was a real concern that they would hurt their reproductive organs. Like, they would become infertile, basically, by playing sports. Sounds like you're scared that girls might be tougher than you. Yeah. (laughs) You gotta put them in a corner. (laughs) No, we're gonna get back to that, because they are. It's not a joke. They really are scared of that. But, yeah. Also, this is so based in classism, too, because all of these white women probably have servants. You know, like, female servants exerting themselves without any concern for those women's organs and there are women in textile mills and factories like women and children who are working unregulated hours in life-threatening conditions kids as young as like 10 in 36 states at this time and in delaware as young as seven little girls were able to be married off physically abusing your wife was legal Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that's oh you're allowed to beat your wife yeah but they can't play basketball like clearly we don't actually have concern for their organs we're concerned with (laughs) controlling them exactly wait what year is this this is the late 19th century so we're talking like 1880s 90s Mm, the lack of consistency i know that's what always gets me if you're gonna be a masochist misogynist (laughs) at least you know run the gamut okay right (laughs) but yeah To your point about them putting women in a box out of genuine fear for being Mm one-upped, there are examples of that. So Mm. there are some competitions where, because the prevailing assumption was sort of that only men would register, some women ended up being able to register. And then after their win, then women would be prohibited from participating. So Mm. in 1902, a figure skater, Madge Sires, became the first woman to compete at the World Figure Skating Championships, and she got silver medal, beating out other men. And the following year, the International Skating Union barred women from the competition, (laughs) concluding in part that a judge may not score fairly if he were romantically involved with a female athlete, victim blaming, (laughs) and that it was generally difficult to compare women with men. Like, didn't, but didn't she, didn't she win? Didn't she skate the loop without a mistake? And the men skated it with a mistake? Like, what's so hard about the comparison? Yeah. 
as most things do, reminds me of drag queens. <laughs> but in like drag race, when someone like wins a competition and then they get to vote somebody off. And if they were to vote off the best competitor, mm. it's like, OK, I get your strategy. You don't want to compete against the best. Like you, you happen to them because you think you'll lose. Like, don't you want to win by beating the best? Yeah. Not by not letting the best participate. Yeah. No, and it's funny, too, because, like, so much of capitalism is about, supposedly, espousing genuine competition, Mm -hmm. you know, for the Mm -hmm. cream to rise to the top. Yeah. And everywhere I've looked so far, we are not espousing true competition. No. We are stepping on the necks of almost everyone. It's like with the the GameStop stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And how, like, lifetime financiers were like, wait, hold on a second. You can't do this. It's like, oh, actually, this is what you do all the time. Now you're mad because it's right. We're using your own rules against you. Yeah. Um, Another example of a woman being extremely athletic in a male space and then prohibited from participating is Jackie Mitchell, who was a 17 year old girl from Tennessee known for her curveball. And so this is in baseball. She's a pitcher. Mm -hmm. And she was signed, I guess, to a one-year contract with the Chattanooga Lookouts, an all-male minor league baseball team. And the next month after she signed, the team was up against the New York Yankees. I'm not totally sure how the minor league was playing the Yankees. I don't totally know anything about baseball, really. But she struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Mm -hmm. And then they voided her contract. It's bad for optics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, the rumors were like, oh, that was staged. Like, people <laughs> literally cannot begin to imagine women being athletic at this time. I feel like there's no way to win because I feel like it could also happen the other way where they sign a woman and they're like, all right, mm-hmm. prove it. And then they don't strike out Babe Ruth. And they're like, see, women can't do anything. Right. And then you get terminated anyway like right if you lose you lose if you win you lose right no it's the classic (laughs) double bind it's like when you're i don't know a woman in corporate america and you're friendly and kind and open and welcoming you're a pushover Mm -hmm. you don't have what it takes you can't negotiate you can't cut it you know Mm -hmm. you can't hack it Mm-hmm. But then if you are assertive, if you are authoritative, if you speak with a lower tone the way every fucking manager is always telling their female direct reports to do, mm-hmm. you're a bitch and mm-hmm. no one wants to work with you. And you're not going to be invited to the round of beers after the client meeting. You know, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. just like you're saying, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to share some of those examples, but we're going to quickly go back to the late 19th century. So now we're in 1896 and the Olympic Games are revived for the first time since, I guess, the ancient games. And I think women started participating as early as 1900, the next games. Mm -hmm. But it was 22 out of 997 athletes who were women, Mm -hmm. i.e. 2%. And I don't think any of those women were from the U.S. It was hard for me to find a list of athletes And some of my sources were sort of conflicting on this front. But from what I could tell, American women, I don't think participated until 1920. So when you say American women, was there also racism going on in this? Like, was it all white women? (laughs) What was going on? Yeah, definitely. There were no black women before 1936. Okay. And in fact, Louise Stokes and Tidy Pickett qualified for the 1932 Olympics in track and field, but they were not allowed to participate because they were black. So then they did end up being able to participate in the next Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936. Mm -hmm. And they were the first black women to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. 
So yeah, as with everything in sports and in the US, black women are just doubly discriminated against and Mm -hmm. like absolutely not included by white feminists who are supposedly making strides, but really just making room for themselves. Mm -hmm. In terms of black men, I think we had our first black athlete sent to the Olympics in 1904, George Coleman Poage. But I don't know how common that was. I don't know if that was sort of a one-off. Again, I was struggling to find lists of athlete names and nationalities Mm -hmm. and races. So I don't know the exact breakout, but it was definitely like a slow drip. Also, the first Paralympics didn't take place until 1960. The first Special Olympics didn't take place until 1968. So again, just the more sort of marginalized your identity, the, the later it was and still is that you're getting access to any of these events. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Then in the 1940s, so this is now after Louis Stokes and Tidy Pickett have gone to the Olympics, we are in the throes of World War II. And I'm sure you know about this because A League of Their Own is a pretty popular movie. But there was an All-American Girls Professional Baseball League which also was super racist. I've never watched A League of Their Own. Wait, really? I've heard of it, but I've never watched it. Can I say something kind of crazy? Yeah. I like don't like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you like it? I don't know. It's it's I'm sure if I had watched it at the time, it would have felt so radical and cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Tom Hanks' character is so ludicrous. It's like hard to suspend disbelief. Oh, <laughs> I think I remember, I might be wrong, but I think I remember hearing Abby talking about the new version versus the old one and that the old one didn't really have queer representation. Not at all. No. And I think she was like, How the I fuck? think that there were, I think there were lesbians on this soccer team. <laughs> Yeah, on the baseball team. Or baseball team, yeah. But yeah, so the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League ran for 11 years from 1943 to 1954 and was sort of born out of the owners of the Wrigley Field in Chicago needing something to do that would be profitable while so many men were at war. And I'm just surprised that they were like, oh, we need to make profit. Yeah. It definitely- and that they were like, oh, let's do a woman's soccer team or sorry, a woman's uh, baseball team. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like men wouldn't choice. have thought. Oh, OK. OK. <laughs> like they had definitely talked about like having like orchestras play <laughs> in the field. And then it was like, I guess we can have women. Is this Wrigley the gum as well? Hmm. Let's see. OK. I guess he is the father of the chewing gum. Uh Uh-huh. He did not invent chewing gum, but it was his company that brought gum to the world. I wonder who actually invented it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so in these early baseball games, just like in those early basketball leagues I was telling you about, there are so many ridiculous runarounds to try to make sure that these women are still feminine. Mm -hmm. So in the basketball, we talked about how they weren't allowed to steal the ball from each other or like move outside of their little quadrant. Well, here... They had very strict obedience with respect to their curfews, their uniforms, and their hairstyles. And even off the field, they were still not allowed to wear pants. If they wanted to do that, they would have to use the servant's elevator. They couldn't, like, tough talk, I guess, or what's it called when people, like, smack talk, you know? Mm -hmm. So they they couldn't tough talk, they couldn't wear pants, and every day after practice, Mr. Wrigley sent them 
to Helena Rubinstein's charm school to learn how to put on makeup, how to put on a coat, and how to get in and out of a car or a chair. Why is that relevant? It's not. It's this (laughs) fucking panic that if women play sports, they're going to turn into, like, unfeminine monsters. Justice for butch girls. Justice for butch (laughs) girls. Thank you. So wait, like, so they were wearing skirts or dresses or something? What were they wearing? Yeah, skirts in, in baseball. They were wearing skirts. And off the field, too. <sighs> yeah. Um. So as cool as it was that, like, women for a brief ephemeral moment in history had a really popular league that local fans showed up to watch over and over again, it clearly was still problematic. And like I said, there were no black baseball players in this league Mm -hmm. in fact there was this black female pitcher named maybe actually she was a like a double player she could hit and pitch work and her name was mamie johnson and she had tried out for the all-american girls professional baseball league and was turned away because she and her friends were black and she ended up playing for an all-male league the negro league so i mean I don't even really know what my point is besides her being doubly discriminated against and the fact that this all-American girls professional baseball league is supposed to be this, like, radical, cool new thing where people previously boxed out of the sport get to participate for the first time and still they are so much more discriminatory than even the all-male league, the Negro league that ends up letting Mamie Johnson play. Yeah, the intersectional oppression. Yeah, both of those leagues, the Negro leagues and... The AAG PBL <laughs> both soon disappeared for honestly a lot of societal reasons. There were little leagues for kids that were all boys only, so girls didn't really have the chance to kind of like grow up practicing. There was also a lot more televisions in homes. By 1955, over half of American families had TVs, so they weren't going out to games as often. And most, if not all, of what was being televised anyway with respect to baseball was the MLB, which was just white men. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot going on, and those leagues ended up sort of disintegrating pretty soon after they were started. Mm. Then as we move into the 60s, have you heard of the story of the first female runners in the Boston Marathon by any chance? No, tell me. So in 1966, a woman named Bobby Gibb ran without a bib, which is like your runner's number. So she was an unofficial entrant, so to speak. But she finished at a pace of three hours and 21 minutes ahead of two thirds of the men in the race. Wow, that is fast. Yeah. And the only reason she had to run without a bib was because she was denied entry because it's physiologically impossible for women to run 26 miles. Wait, this is okay. This is ringing a bell. I think I have heard this. And she was just like, I'm going to run it anyway. Yeah, this is 1966. Like my mom's alive. My dad's alive at this point. Like this is within one lifetime of us. Women were being told it's physiologically impossible for you to run that far. Mm -hmm. So the next year she ran again, still unofficially, but someone else named Catherine Switzer had sort of like tricked her way into having a bib. You know how, for example, there are authors who would like write under male pseudonyms Mm -hmm. or just with their initials. For example, famous transphobe JK Rowling. (laughs) She wrote with her initials rather than her name because it would sell better if people assumed it was a man writing it. And that's kind of the same trick Catherine Switzer played where she just registered with her initials as like KV Switzer rather than Catherine. Mm. And she did get a bib and she was the first official entrant. She had started racing with a hoodie on to hide her long hair and people just assumed she was a guy. 
And then as she was warmer and warmer throughout the course of the race, she took her hoodie off and the race manager assaulted her during the race, trying to rip her bib off and physically stop her from running. But someone who was with her at the time was able to like knock that dude on his ass. She still ended up finishing about an hour behind Bobby Gibb with a time of around like four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. So she became the first official like woman to run the Boston Marathon. I love that as a woman, you have to not just run the marathon, but also (laughs) physically fight off (laughs) people who are trying to assault you. I know. I know. That's like, it's just what's so frustrating too about what we were saying earlier with the double bind of either you pitch well and people assume it was staged or you pitch poorly and people use that as evidence that women can't do shit. But there's also that like third scenario where maybe you do poorly because you're literally being attacked and like don't even have the chance to display your actual athletic prowess. Or maybe you just haven't had any opportunity growing up to be athletic So how could you know if you're even good enough at a sport to try to enter this race or competition or whatever anyway? Yeah, I mean, I don't I I think the point isn't are women faster than men or can women even do this? It's just you should be allowed to run Mm -hmm. a marathon or enter a marathon if you want to, Mm -hmm. regardless of your gender. Like, I don't think anyone's trying to prove Oh, as an entire gender, women are no. better than men at every sport. No, it's just I'm a person. And I, if I want to run, let me fucking run. Like, it, right. It's not that big of a deal. It's really not. But yeah, basically, I mean, we'll get into this later. There are so many benefits to being able to play sports in a healthy environment. And with that in mind, any caring, compassionate, economically literate person would be interested in making sports possible for everyone in every demographic Mm -hmm. and to your point we're not trying to prove anyone is better than anyone we're just trying to say people love moving their bodies and love playing games and love being on teams and learning sportspersonship and a lot of other important skills it's also like why we talk about this a lot of like even if it's not from a place of compassion or just genuinely not giving a shit what other people are doing why do you hate money like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, okay if if profit is what you want mm-hmm. if you had more people playing and different types of people playing mm-hmm. you could be inviting new customers and patrons of your product or whatever like i just don't understand and like even ignoring that revenue making up for whatever investment is going into girl sports programs in invisible women Caroline Criado Perez talks about how investment in girls sports can lead to a significant reduction in fracture rates. We'll get into that in a bit, but when done well, sports can help everyone build bone density and prevent osteoporosis later in life. Mm-hmm. And so it it actually is in everybody's best interest to have fewer osteoporotic adults and like the reduction in fracture rates alone mm-hmm. could pay for the investment in girls sports programs. So again, like you're saying, like beyond just the money you could bring in by selling more tickets and more merch and more ads during televised events, like you also just might be saving your city some money on unnecessary healthcare costs because you just have, again, if you've done this well, a healthier population. I think this is an ad for universal healthcare. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Back to our rapid fire tour through the history of women's sports. We are now leaving... 
Catherine Switzer and Bobby Gibb and moving to the passage of Title IX, which was signed into law in 1972. It was signed into law by then-President Nixon, but it began its journey through all three branches of government with Representative Patsy T. Mink of Hawaii, who was recognized as like the major author and sponsor of the legislation and the person who introduced it in Congress. Mm. Um, important note, it was not extended to include transgender athletes until 2021, so it was definitely like a landmark decision that did change the face of sports in a lot of ways. But again, like not wholly inclusive and still prioritizing people who are already more proximal to power. Mm. But it did make a pretty big change. About 294,000 girls were playing high school sports in 1971 compared to 3.7 million boys. And then now, half a century later, the numbers are way closer. In 2019, 3.4 million girls participated in high school sports compared to 4.5 million boys. Now I want to jump into the part of the episode where we talk about women being able to participate and they've made it past sort of that basic entry hurdle, but there are still things that they're facing now and I want to kind of dig into some of that. Let's do it. First and foremost, women's abilities are routinely demeaned and degraded. And again, like we're not trying to prove that women are better than everyone. Like that's really not the point. But men definitely have stake in screaming at the top of their lungs over and over and over again all day, every day that they are better than women. Mm -hmm. Even now, one in eight men think they could beat Serena Williams. One in eight random men or tennis players? Men. (laughs) Just... (laughs) Men at large. That is really embarrassing. No, is that humiliating? (laughs) That's just a confidence that you're pulling out of your ass. Like, if you're not a tennis player, that means that you think inherently a woman at the top of the top of female athletes is below an untrained casual tennis player. Like, that's just not true. Right. Like, if you want to, if you want to debate, like, can she beat Fitted? That's a different conversation. But like, run of the mill Joe Schmo at the coffee shop? Like, sorry, no. Not going to happen. Right. Like, Joe Schmo's not going to get a point off. And it's just this, like, ludicrous confidence. You're just sexist. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, they're screaming the loudest. Like, one in eight isn't seven out of eight, you know? But it's, this woman is a fantastic freaking athlete who's done shit pregnant that you can't even imagine. Yeah. Dream of. Yeah. Fantasize about doing. Or I think also watching people play sports who are really good. Because they're really good, they make it look easy. Right. You know, like when you watch really elite athletes do their thing, Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, you're kicking a ball. I could do that. No, you couldn't. (laughs) Right. There's the phrase Monday morning quarterback for a reason. You have the benefit of hindsight. You have the bird's eye view. You're watching this and then every few points listening to commentators who are also professionals, say the strategy they think the other teammate is adopting and this and that. But you're not standing there with a ball hurtling at you at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Figuring out not just how do I get this back over the net, but then where do I place it? And then where do I run to to be prepared for the next shot in two seconds? Like you're on your couch having a beer. Let's be real. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be real. And it must be so frustrating to be Billie Jean King and be like, I thought I put this to rest already. And now people are up Serena Williams ass. Like, come on. <laughs> but there is a huge age difference there, right? Yes. Yeah, so this guy, Bobby Riggs, was 55 at the time. And she, Billie Jean King, was 29. 
but he was a self-proclaimed chauvinist. Yeah. Which is always fun. Honestly, I'd rather you, you know, wear a t-shirt so I yeah, know to cross the street. <laughs> like, Yeah, same. But he had boasted that women were inferior and they could not handle the pressure of the game and that even at his age, he could beat any female player. So yes, he was older, but he was also like so boastful and so... A cocky asshole. Yeah. But she won. I think the score was... It was three sets. It was six four six three six three. So she won like just relentlessly and indisputably. Mm-hmm. And again, there was a huge age difference. I don't think if they were the same age, it would have been nearly the same result or even close. Yeah, but- I think I, the I think the way I think of that game, like I know it's called Battle of the Sexes, but it's not proving. Oh, this puts to rest women are better than men at sports. All it puts to rest is his confidence yes. that because he's a man regardless of his age ability whatever yes he can be any woman because women are inherently inferior to such a degree that no other complication could possibly touch his ability to beat them like that's all it puts to rest that you're just an asshole yeah that's exactly <laughs> and and like women's sports are competitive and are legitimate and they are well trained and they are skilled and like they're not being like frivolous and silly and weak and bad on the yeah. court in a way that would allow any male or any athletic male to beat them full stop. That just that's not I think the also truth. that your point that he was saying that they can't handle the pressure of the game. I think going at someone's like mental fortitude is way more of a reach. <laughs> you know, like you could say on average, for the most part, you know, women have higher body fat percentages or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously outliers on both ends of that. Right. But saying that you can't handle the pressure of the game, our brains aren't different. And the and the amount of like shit that women have to go through. Oh my god, this man this man couldn't survive an hour as a woman. Yeah, like, it's like are you kidding? pick your battles. Like don't go for mental fortitude. Something A you can't yeah. prove and B <laughs> you would probably lose at. Yeah. And I think there's also an acceptance as women of suffering, whether that's just being a human being or because of internalized misogyny or something. But like, I really don't think that if right now, like men had to have a menstrual cycle and give birth, I think the the species would die out. Like, I think it would take one man to say to his Mm -hmm. friend, bro, don't do it. Don't have a yeah. baby. It sucks. It rapes your ass open. Like, I yeah. just know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and then we'd be over. It just feels like I know it's so complicated and I know it has a lot to do with like insecurity and the patriarchy fucks us all, as we love to say. But sometimes it feels like we're just missing the point of life. No, like, nos complicamos la vida. Like, for yes, no reason. For no reason. And people just want to play a game with a ball. Yeah. Make it know? about that. Like, and. Just make it easier to do that. Make it easier to have fun. Make it easier to find joy and identity and teamwork. Just, you know, like, do you have to hate tweet Serena Williams or can we all just play? Yeah. (laughs) And don't be a sore loser or a sore winner, Mm -hmm. you know? But yeah, all of that to say, women are demeaned and underestimated. And it's not just by the fans. It's not just by their fellow athletes. It's also by... The media, of course. Mm. And I read this book called Good for a Girl that just came out a few months ago. So I felt excited by how up to date a lot of the research and like policy recommendations seemed. Mm -hmm. It is from the perspective of a cis white woman who's in the running space. 
And so it's one narrow, specific story mm-hmm. of her experience as an athlete. I think she does pay relatively comprehensive attention to some of the gaps in this space. But obviously, like, this is a story that is funded and is now a New York Times bestselling story. And I yeah. still want more stories that are funded and New York Times bestselling from other demographics, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, I think she pays attention to the right things. And I liked this book. And one of the things that she did talk about was the treatment of women in media Mm. and how they're more likely to not only have their physical appearance commented on, but also be addressed by their first name, be more harshly judged for acts of aggression. Wait, what do you mean more likely to be addressed by their first name? So you called Roger Federer earlier Federer, Uh not Roger. Whereas... And we were were also talking about Serena. We say Serena. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Is that... But is that... I mean, excuse my naivete. Is that disrespectful? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I honestly like wrote this quote down without thinking much about it because I remember. No, but that's a. To... It's an interesting description. Because like, like we said, Trump and Hillary, right? Yeah. No, it's an interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. That we do that. Like we say Kamala. Yeah. And we say Biden. I do think generally using someone's last name is a little bit more formal theoretically yeah i'm curious if there's like a if it's a a lack of respect thing or also maybe like another thing that comes to mind is that we think of women as more approachable and like Mm -hmm. sensitive and familial i wonder what that's about like when did that start right because i'm inclined to think like yes i know there's a lot of internalized misogyny but like when women are engaging in like platonically intimate familial acts of affection that is so often pathologized by media. We're told so often to get ahead in the corporate ladder. You need to act more like a man. Like you need to be more authoritative. You need to do this, do that. And in so doing, I think we've stamped out so much female emotional intelligence and so much community building. So I definitely am not suggesting that the solution is to start calling women by their last names. But at the same time, I'm also noting the distinct like the noting difference. the discrepancy and like not sure i'm yet willing to give media the benefit of the doubt but in addition to the discrepant ways in which commentators and media in general will refer to female versus male athletes women are more likely to be harshly judged for acts of aggression and competitiveness mm-hmm. which again compounds if you are a black woman oh definitely and women are also more likely to be asked questions about their dating lives rather than about like tactics and strategy Mm -hmm. so more like oh do you have a boyfriend at home who's rooting for you rather than what were you thinking about in that last point you know Mm -hmm. so i thought that was a good segue to talk about the first all-female crew to participate in the whitbread round the world yacht race the what (laughs) (laughs) okay the white bread race around the world is that what you said do you know what's so funny? It should be called white bread because it's all white people. <laughs> a yacht race. Okay. Yes. A yacht race that takes place over the course of many months, six, seven, eight. I don't even know. Very, very long race because you go all of the way around the world. Oh my gosh. It seems so grueling, Ellie. I just can't even tell you. <laughs> and scary and stinky. Scary, stinky. It's they... In this crew that the documentary I watched focused on, it was called um, the Maiden Crew, mm-hmm. which I thought was cute because it's like a maiden voyage. Yeah. I don't know. And they're the first all-female crew, but they worked, they had two teams and each team was four hours on, four hours off. So they were just like flipping, taking turns. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the things they said too was that in the winter or not the winter, but when they were in the Southern Hemisphere, one of their strategies was to go as south as possible because despite it being more dangerous, that would, just with the way the globe works, be a shorter route. Mm. And it was so cold that it would take so long to bundle up before you went to bed that your sleeping time was like cut in half and you were so sleep deprived just from like bundling and unbundling and rebundling. Oh my God. I know. It's it's just the wildest thing I've ever witnessed. Honestly, humans are really crazy and cool. But wow. And I sit here complaining when my heater is too hot, too cold. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, oh. I literally, I I, like I've never slept so soundly. I was like, my bed. (laughs) So wild. Even even when they're talking about being like out at sea, they see no one. They're in the roughest waters. The waves are so high that at one point it broke their boat and they had to repair it out at sea. See, I don't get that stuff. Hearing that, I'm like, so why isn't everyone dead? No, no. People did die in this race. Oh, that's awful. I know. Not not in this girl, like, not in this all-women's crew. But what's interesting, actually, this is just going to make me so emotional because of how much I love women. There was another crew in the same, like, category competing against the maiden. Yeah. And they, I think in the night or something, might have hit a wave or an iceberg or something the wrong way like you're traveling at 11 knots 14 knots and it's pitch dark and icebergs are everywhere oh my god so something happened where two men were pitched overboard and on the maiden they said that everyone was always in those conditions strapped the fuck down like laced up tied to you know like Uh harnessed in i don't know what was going on on that boat the documentary wasn't about them but Two men were pitched overboard and one of them, they like, you have to turn around, which is already a feat in those kinds of conditions. Mm -hmm. And then it's the nighttime and you have to go find like a floating head in the darkness if they're floating. Oh, God. I know. They were able to recover those two men, but one of them, I think he was sort of like DOA. I think he was floating upside down when they got to him. But they, through their radio communication tool, whatever it's called, were able to contact the maiden and they talked this team through saving the life of the one person who still had a pulse when they recovered him. (sighs) So while they're dealing with what I'm about to tell you about, such as everyone, you know, their competition and the media being so effing nasty to them, they're the ones with the knowledge saving people's lives, you know? And the thing is that shouldn't be impressive. That should be necessary. Like it's a competition. Yeah. No one should have to die. No one should have to die. And when when the stakes are one of our men went overboard, the, the talking smack needs to go out the window. Like, it can't be, yeah. oh, well, fuck you. Now you're going to lose. No. Mm-hmm. Like, it's human beings. And I know it is a bit baffling to me, the the willingness to, to like, engage in a sport that's life-threatening when it's not out of necessity. I know. <laughs> um, I know. But, duh, they help them. Everyone should. And 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 the media should be like, these women rock. I don't know. I, I know. I know. That's what's wild is basically their crew, the maiden, the all-female crew of Helms women, had a doctor in their crew mm. and other people didn't. Smart move. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but yeah, all of that to say, it's, as you can tell, super grueling. And the person who put together the all-female crew, her name is Tracy Edwards. She had participated in 
the race before. It was in the 1985 to 86 race, because again, it's really long. So it takes place from like the fall through the spring or whatever, depending on your hemisphere. But Mm -hmm. all she knew was that she wanted to be in the race. And the first time she went, she convinced an all-male crew to let her join as the cook. And she was one of four women out of 230 total people doing this race. And the next year, she was like, I don't want to be a cook. Like, I want to do the sailing. And the only way for her to do that, basically, because none of the guys would have ever let her, was to put together an all-female crew. Mm. I mean, she even said, like, when she was on the male boat, well, she said this in retrospect in the documentary. What she said was, Mm -hmm. the men did not make life easy for her. They wrote on the back of her underwear, for sale, one case of beer. What? Yeah. We're awful to her they like didn't let her up on deck she was i'm just, sorry like, to the person who's making your food that's a confident move i'd poison uh, you <laughs> i poison you i know and she was like yeah i loved going up on deck like when i was able to wait what year is this 1985 this really sounds like you're talking about the 1500s i i, I know i'm like my mom was 20 when i'm allowed out into the air I see know. some sunlight what i know it's so wild But then, of course, footage of her at the time, while she's on this male crew, she's saying, yeah, the guys on the boat have been really, really good. They're very nice guys. A few of them have been a little bit reserved about having a girl on the boat, but they put up with it gallantly. Well, what is she going to say? What are you going to say? You're on a boat in the fucking middle of the ocean. Right. Right. And the media is already trying to tear you apart. You're not going to say. And she wants the chance to be sailing next time. Like, so she has to put up with this abuse, you know? No, yeah. There's so much calculus that you have to do mm-hmm. like what what you have to say and she's probably also thinking like oh if i talk them up maybe my chances in getting in their good graces is better mm-hmm. if i say anything negative even if it's what's going on then it's like you're a snitch blah 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 it's all in good fun you're so dramatic mm-hmm. oh you can't even take it like again you can't you can't win you can't win you know but to jump back into the media specifically, mm-hmm. with respect to how it talked about the maiden all-female crew, it was pretty much everything you would expect when the group of women was preparing for the start of the race. They were being asked if they were ready for the limited packing allowances. Like, what are you going to... Like, no waterproof mascara? What are you going to do? Oh, my God. And <laughs> when Tracy Edwards, a skipper of this yacht, I guess, I'm like... Not sure. (laughs) But when Tracy Edwards, the skipper, was being referred to in the media, this one commentator called her the diminutive Tracy Edwards, which is just a random adjective to add for no reason. Like the diminutive Tracy Edwards. Okay. And then even in a race right before the Whitbread, they were doing this other preparatory shorter race called the Fastnet. And during a big wave, the boat lurched and one of these women broke her wrist and... The first mate at the time, who was later fired by Tracy, had said they needed to turn around and they couldn't finish the race. And Tracy was really against that because she knew what they were up against in terms of public perception and said, no, just grab the med kit, the medical kit, Mm. like morphine and a splint. That's why we have it. And it turned out the medical kit wasn't on board. 
because... Did it fly off on a wave? No. The first mate, Marie Claude, had told the team not to pack it. And I think there was just some sort of unclear air about who is the leader of this boat. So she ended up being fired, which I I think Tracy just figured this is the right move. Like we need to have the rest of the team understand like who's in charge and know who to turn to and not feel so confused Mm. if we're going to survive. Mm -hmm. And it is a life or death decision. Like Mm -hmm. she really does not take that lightly. And of course, when they get back to shore and the news breaks that Marie Claude's been fired, the media goes nuts with it. War on the waves. First mate quits as storm brews amid all female crew. Like the media, of course, reads as much drama into this as possible. Meanwhile, I am sure there are lineup changes and switch arounds on the other teams. But this one is the one they're going to fixate on. Yeah. And try to poke holes in. Uh, It's so difficult. Like, because... I understand that from the media perspective, you're trying to sell a paper. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make your headline more salacious than the next paper. Mm -hmm. So whether you want to or not, that's the kind of article you're trying to write. And the only reason that you're doing that is also because people tend to buy that more. Right. And we do have some like sick fascination with Mm -hmm. disaster and drama. And so it's really hard to find like someone to blame or a route to take to change that dynamic. I know. But the worst part, too, is just like, I think you're so right. Unfortunately, when the culture is what it is, certain things are going to sell and certain things aren't. But the joke, of course, is people getting rich off making these women's lives as miserable as possible because it gets harder and harder the more and more the odds feel stacked against them Mm -hmm. and they feel more and more under pressure to prove people wrong when these are the headlines on top of the fact that they're already so under invested in so for example the boat that they're on is a secondhand boat because they couldn't get anyone to sponsor them oh wow all of the brands were like we can't risk the potential adverse publicity because everyone expected them to fail so Tracy remortgaged her house to buy a secondhand boat. They fixed it up themselves. And the way they were able to fix it up was because she remortgaged the boat to afford the tools they needed to fix it. it. It's just crazy the amount they're up against and also like damn you really want to sail on this boat i I know and and they even ended up winning two of the legs one of which was like the longest and most excruciating and they don't even do anymore and then they get to shore and media is asking questions like do you have boyfriends at home are you all lesbians how much fighting has there been among the group how do you all get on i mean a bunch of girls come on Uh, and they're like uh no, actually, I'm just worried about paying the mortgage on my home. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Bye. Yeah. The fuck? I know. Actually, we saved a man's life out there. No biggie. No biggie. Uh, n- yeah. But thanks for asking. Even this one journalist, Bob Fisher, calls them a tin full of tarts. And you know he was so proud of that alliteration. I know. <laughs> I know. And you know he is so fucking embarrassed now because they finished... Not only did they win two legs, but they did finish the entire race. They didn't come in first, again, because I mentioned their boat had sort of like broken down and they had to stop and fix it as it was filling up with water. But at the beginning of the race, Tracy had said, when asked, are you a feminist? She said, oh, no, no, no. I hate that word. I hate the word feminist. I just like to be allowed to do what I want to do. And I don't see why I shouldn't be allowed to sail because I'm a girl. Yeah. And I think it's about time some men realize women enjoy sailing about as much as they do. And they're just as good at it. 
by the time she finishes the race, she's like, you know, I think I am a feminist. I was going to say, uh, love you, queen. That's kind of the definition. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely is a definition. And then I think seeing the aggression against the maiden made her realize there is something really, really, really wrong. Yeah. Definitely a good documentary, though. I strongly recommend. But I thought that was like an interesting case study in terms of media treatment of women athletes as opposed to male mm. athletes. Especially with something that is so life-threatening. I don't know how you're continuing to make the argument that they're not good or they're weak or not brave or whatever it is. They got on, even if they didn't finish, they got on the damn boat. Like, that is a scary thing to do. I know. And like, how could how could you possibly ask them about if they're going to be sad about not bringing waterproof mascara on board? They're not putting on mascara. I know. How could that possibly be one of your questions and and one one of the helms women put it we saw ourselves as a professional sailing team who had entered a race with the goal to win it the world saw us as a human interest story Mm -hmm. oh and having the girls done well for even arriving like that's how the world saw them and she was like i wanted to be asked about tactics challenges we faced en route were we able to find the wind how do we navigate yeah like did we you know that's what i wanted to be asked about and i was asked are you sad you didn't get to bring your mascara? Like, yeah. no, that's not why I'm here. And it's not it's not frivolous to enjoy mascara. Honestly, what a vibe. Like, all these women yeah. in the middle of the ocean, like, doing their makeup and being, like, full beat, <laughs> pulling on the sail. <laughs> They're like, we're going to full scent tonight, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's I just, want that movie. I No, no, no. Where... <laughs> Where is like, where are the production companies pounding down Tracy Edwards' door? I know. I, I really, come on. We, we we have enough movies about World War II. Yeah. How, do we have any movies about this? Yeah, I'm Like done. the documentary, obviously not counting. I'm talking, you know, a fictionalization. Yeah. When are we getting that movie? It, it makes me think of the, <sighs> all those compilations on YouTube of like actresses that are asked ridiculous questions right next to their male co-stars and that they'll like ask the man some like really deep question about their character and then ask the woman like was it really uncomfortable in the like outfit that you had to wear on this like marvel movie or whatever and they're like and okay and the like really inappropriate ones of like do you wear underwear in in like your cat suit or whatever like your latex suit and what it's like for uh, excuse me <laughs> like in what like, world is that okay to ask anyone? What is, what, what? Like, why do you care? And why do you have nothing else? Not even like a, a rom-com where maybe you're falling into more like gender stereotypes. Even in a, like a DC or Marvel movie that is very like male energy. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely cool to see female superheroes, even though I think it does fall a little bit into the male's default stuff. Mm-hmm. But even in those films. I know. So stupid. And exhausting. But in addition to this discrepant media treatment, women are also at a disadvantage in sports in general because they're being shoved into a system built for cis men. So much of the infrastructure and so many of the coaches fundamentally do not understand female physiology. I mean, mm. as we're talking about male as default, we're just basically expecting women and girls to be able to do what we've always expected of men and boys. And if you can't, well, you're shit out of luck or you're weak or you're going to be dropped by your sponsor or your team or your coach or whoever. Mm. Like what? So, well, there are no norms in the sports world built around the female body. Mm. Women's peak performance comes later in life, actually in their late 20s. 
as opposed to the very steep improvement men or cis men see between the ages of 18 to 22. Mm. That's when women see a performance dip. Mm. So at the age where you're clawing to keep your scholarship, you're going to start performing worse and Mm. it is out of your control and that's okay. But then what happens is there are coaches who don't understand female physiology and definitely don't understand the menstrual cycle start recommending to these girls, maybe they should just lose weight Mm. and maybe that would help. And probably makes it harder to get signed out of university for like a professional team of some sort. Yeah, for sure. If you even stick around that long, because the attrition rates are way worse for women in sports, because, of course, you're going to be necessarily discouraged when you're being told by your male coaches that you're supposed to be improving year after year after year after year, and you're not, which, unbeknownst to you, is perfectly normal, Mm -hmm. but you feel like shit, and you feel like you're not doing it well enough or good enough, and then you start, per your coach's recommendations, restricting your intake and dieting and you're losing weight and it's supposed to help but it's actually ending up hurting Mm -hmm. basically when you restrict if you lose your menstrual cycle which coaches are not equipped to talk about currently you could become at risk of getting something called reds reds it's relative energy deficiency in sports and basically when you're under fueled you're a slowed and weakened athlete but It's really common in women at this age range who are at a loss as to how to improve their performance. And then they end up having worse bone density and fractures. Restricting your food in your 20s as a woman increases your likelihood of getting osteoporosis. And like building Mm -hmm. bone density in your 20s is really important. Yeah. I'm pretty sure around like your early 30s, it's kind of like capped out in some way. Like the the more muscle that you build, like it's only going to get more difficult and so if you're in that range Mm -hmm. it can lead to a lot of health stuff down the line totally and running which is a high impact sport is theoretically one of the exercises that should help you build more bone density but when you're restricting to the degree that some of these athletes are they're actually losing bone density and when they're not talking to their coaches about their menstrual cycle they might not even realize that something is going internally wrong like you might be Mm -hmm. lauded as the girl on your team with the gold body you know that's what you want to look like on race day and little do you or your teammates know your bones are full of holes you are not in healthy condition yeah but 80 percent of female distance runners don't talk to their coaches about periods at all and 80% of coaches in the first place are male. It's actually wild that coaches are not discussing this more. I would hope that there is better education like we've talked about in past episodes on like your hormones and all this stuff, but I have learned most of what I know about my like menstrual cycle or my hormones in general on my own outside of a educational context Mm -hmm. you know and so I could totally see an athlete being in college and having no idea if you know skipping a period is something to be concerned about or not or that their period has anything to do with their Mm -hmm. performance abilities in sports like I would never have even put that together I know and it's like these athletes are experts in tracking and optimizing you know it's like It wouldn't be hard to just be like, oh, and track your menstrual cycle. You know, they're tracking the weather. They're tracking their mileage. They're tracking, okay, this is how I felt this day. This is my calorie intake this day. Like, 
Yeah. The, the benefit that they would see from just tracking their menstrual cycle instead of any of that is beyond our comprehension because it's currently not even happening. And part of why it's not happening is because these institutions confuse a natural biological process with the sexualization of all things female. Yeah. And it's not weird for your coach to talk about a bodily function with you the way they would almost anything else, especially when it is so directly linked with your long-term and short-term health. (sighs) But it's not being talked about. And another thing that is just like not at all factored in to the female professional sport experience is pregnancy. Mm. It's basically considered an extreme injury. (laughs) You are not paid for the entire duration of your pregnancy. And it's treated, yeah, as if you are severely injured rather than doing what all of the male athletes are allowed to do, which is like start a family. Wait, also, if you get an extreme injury, they don't pay you while you're on medical leave? Yeah, they don't pay their athletes well at all. And this is something that I think is under talked about is like how exploited all professional athletes really are. Yeah, you are not paid when you're injured. And also you, (laughs) I'm laughing because it's so dystopian and so sad. But if you don't meet certain performance benchmarks, your pay can be cut in half and like never restored. So if you sign a contract with Nike and you have a bad season for whatever reason, maybe because their exploitative, abusive coaches are telling you to lose weight that you really don't need to lose, and then you're injured, and then you can't race, mm-hmm. now your salary is cut in half permanently. It's unbelievable what they're doing to these athletes. It's it's really, really exploitative. Wow, that's so fascinating, because I feel like I, I guess in general, I mostly hear through the grapevine about male athletes, but I think of athletes as like, Oh, they're so wealthy and paid so much money that is like a ridiculous amount. Mm -mm. And I haven't thought of maybe those athletes who are not actually getting that level of benefit. And I mean, in general, I think that we should be helping people when they get injured, but especially if they get injured playing the sport. I know. Like you can sue your company because you slipped on the floor. (laughs) Like if you get hurt during practice you got to keep them afloat i know and and that's another thing that's i don't think being adequately tracked is injury rate we are tracking performance of the team but not taking into account okay how many girls on this team have eating disorders how many girls stayed on the team the entire time how many girls this season got injured Hmm. we're not looking at that we're looking oh did joe fucking schmo bring this team to an ncaa championship or not Hmm. if yes oh they're the best in the they're the best in the country really they're they're freshman all-star dropped off the face of the planet after one season Hmm. isn't that problematic Hmm. and so it's just it's not yeah pregnancy periods are not being taken into account they're generally exploited in terms of their salaries when their performances dip and Another thing when we were talking about eating disorders is that the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University found 35% of female collegiate athletes and 10% of male athletes are at risk for anorexia. The rates are even higher for the risk of bulimia. And when it comes to addressing that, the largest threat to athlete mental health, which disproportionately affects women, NCAA does nothing. An entity that is ostensibly trying to protect athletes 
is doing nothing about eating disorders, even though when confronted with concussion research and potential liability, they immediately created research-backed, strictly enforced checklists and policies for head injuries that all programs have to adhere to. Mm -hmm. But when it's something that, like, disproportionately affects women, it's like, well, I don't know if we care. (laughs) (laughs) And after having a baby, new research is showing that female athlete performances are no worse than they were pre-baby if they are given adequate time and space to recover from pregnancy and birth. And again, that's new research because it's like really like women aren't being studied. Their performance, their performance peaks, all of this stuff has been inadequately studied to date. Mm -hmm. But this is the kind of thing where it doesn't make sense to think of pregnancy as the same as potentially career ending injuries Mm -hmm. because it's not. Research is showing that it's not and nothing Mm -hmm. can change as the author of Good for a Girl says, nothing can change until those in power see female-bodied experiences as deserving of their own norms. Mm -hmm. You can't hold female-bodied athletes to the male norms. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely not. And if pregnancy was this career-ending injury, the human race wouldn't exist. Like, it's a (laughs) natural... Like, pregnancy is rough, rougher for some than others, but it's not like, oh my God, she got pregnant. It's over. It's over for her. I know. Just so ridiculous. But all of that to say, there are a lot of ways in which women and female athletes are being squashed into this system that was built by and for men, and they aren't being considered as neutrally unique individuals who are worthy of their own norms and their own timelines and their own training programs and all of that stuff. Interestingly, though, one place where we do make exceptions for women is the uniforms <laughs> strangely male as default doesn't apply here <laughs> we talked earlier about women wearing skirts in the all-american girls professional baseball league um but they are still to this day a point of contention and in 2021 i'm not sure if you saw this the norwegian women's beach handball team yes yeah they wanted to wear less revealing uniforms And they had repeatedly complained about the required bikini bottoms and their complaints were ignored. And so they each wore shorts, which, by the way, it's like a one inch inseam. Like shorts is a generous word. Yeah. And they were all fined 150 euros each. Why in the world would a team be expected to wear a bikini bottom? That is no way to live. You can't be playing a sport like that, like on a professional level. You're not at the beach with your friends tossing a volleyball around. I know. You're in underwear trying to play a game. Like, is it not riding up their ass? Like, it must be, right? A hundred percent. And like those leotards that the gymnasts wear? No. The men are in fucking sweatpants, effectively. And the women are in the tightest leotards. And if it is more comfortable, fine. Like, I have no qualms with what you choose to wear. My point is just, it's currently required that women specifically wear one thing while men wear another thing. If it was everyone wear what the fuck you find most comfortable, that'd be I would have no qualms with the leotard. But it's the gendered and like regulated nature of it all. Did you ever watch the movie Stick It? Yes. Oh my god. Yes. The scene so with the bra strap mm-hmm. where like one girl does this incredible vault jump flip whatever mm-hmm. and they deduct points because her bra strap was showing. It's like she has to wear a bra. Back I know. To the it's like bras. if it's she like... wasn't wearing a bra and you could see her nipples, I'm sure there would have been another deduction, you know, like 
It's just ridiculous. I mean, it even reminds me, I didn't research anything on Tanya Harding for this, but it reminds me, I watched the movie I, Tanya. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know enough about that whole situation, but I, I remember a big issue she ran into as well was that she was poor. Yeah. And a lot of the figure skating girls had money for nicer costumes and manicured nails and better hair or whatever. And she was constantly being docked for, I don't know, I mean, just not looking the right way. It's like the intersection of that, like, sexism and classism. Mm -hmm. But it's not happening to these male athletes. Like, just whatever. Men can walk down the street with their boxers showing and no one cares. Men can take their shirts off. Yeah. And no one cares. (laughs) Male nipples, not hurting anybody. But besides all of what we've talked about so far, which is, of course, like media reception and being squashed into a system that is not built or designed by or for women and female-bodied people, and besides these uniforms, there's also not just like harassment, but genuine abuse. So there are a few things I want to talk about. The first is just sort of like... The ignoring of warning signs. I don't know if you've heard about Mary Kane and the Nike Oregon Project. No, tell me. Basically, she was the fastest girl in America. And she joined then Alberto Salazar, the coach and like creator basically of this Nike Oregon Project where he was training the best of the best runners. And she broke five bones while training. Ow. Because... She was, as she put it, caught in a system designed for and by men, which destroys the bodies of young girls. She was publicly shamed for being above her goal race weight. Like at races, even the author of the book I read, Good for a Girl, was at a race where she overheard Alberto Salazar like screaming at Mary Kane, a young, like 17 year old, 18 year old, whatever she was at the time, girl for gaining five pounds or whatever the case might be. But Clearly, she wasn't weighing enough because she was breaking bones from how brittle they had become while training. And it got so bad that she became suicidal and eventually left. And now she's suing them. Mm -hmm. But she spoke out and a lot of people ended up, I think, in her wake speaking out saying extremely similar things where they felt like they were publicly humiliated, weighed in front of their teammates. Food was withheld from them. They were even encouraged to... Basically take diuretics, which is illegal. I'm not sure exactly how that would be performance enhancing. Maybe you're just lighter because you have less water weight. I'm not not honestly sure. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it was a place where abuse and shortcuts and optimization to such an egregious and malicious fault was rampant. Even Salazar went into when she had... At one point, because Mary Kane was not feeling well, she went to see a physician and Salazar was in the room with her during her appointment. What? Yeah. And she told the physician that she hadn't got her period for over a year and it was clearly linked to weight loss. And they were like, basically just allowing Salazar to recommend, like Salazar, the coach was just like, oh, just like start taking the birth control pill or something. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Like it's no interest in why this is happening. And... He also had a sports psychologist on site who was supposed to be obviously protecting the confidence and privacy of their athletes. And instead, Darren, who turned out not to be a licensed psychologist, was sharing everything back with the coach, Alberto Salazar. That's illegal. Mm -hmm. They also found later that Salazar was copied on emails where 
they were discussing with this like chemist or something how athletes could absorb from a body lotion more testosterone but less than would be picked up on a drug test or something wait what <laughs> i know like this this person is so clearly problematic and yet the ceo of nike at the time mark parker said that they were unsubstantiated assertions like they were keeping him on they were like salazar was charged with this i think he was i don't know if it was ruled that he was guilty but he then was appealing the decision nike was funding it so Oh, you don't pay your pregnant female athletes, but you'll fund this dude's appeal after allegations of assault, abuse, doping, all this stuff. That's so disgusting. I know. Yeah. So Mary Kane ended up filing in 2021 a $20 million lawsuit. I actually don't know the results of that, if it's even been decided yet. And she's lucky that she still has a relationship with running. I think she's turned to triathlons now. And that's more than a lot of people can say. A lot of people's relationship with their bodies and sport in general is entirely ruined coming out of this. And that's what's so crushing is that if we understood female trajectories in sport, their performance pits, their performance peaks, their menstrual cycles, if we knew how to talk to them about this, if we understood that losing weight and losing your bone density and breaking tons of bones and all this like if we looked at attrition, if we looked at mental health, if we looked at eating disorders, we could do so much better by these girls. And instead, these short-term gains by like testosterone and body lotion and diuretics and whatever the fuck else are prioritized at these young girls' expense. Like, okay, maybe she'll win the race this month and you'll get another title. But where does that leave her? Where does that leave all of these other girls? It leaves them like broken, confused, disheartened, depressed, suicidal. Like, we're really just not building a system that works for them. Yeah. The other case I wanted to very briefly touch on with respect to abuse is the U.S. women's gymnastics team. Mm. I think that a lot has been coming to light in recent years that has helped us sort of reframe things that we used to code as heroic feats of athleticism but we can now more clearly see as the perpetuation of abuse. One example being when Carrie Strug was at the 1996 Olympics and was doing the vault. And after her first take, she Is had... Is that the one that like broke her ankle and then did mm-hmm. it again? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, sorry. Keep going. No, no, no. You're that fine. That was crazy. That was so wild. And we all lauded her as a hero for doing the second vault and meddling, but... Apparently, she had, after the first call, like looked to her coach or gone to the sidelines to try and chat with her coach, Bella Caroli, and he made it really clear that she had to go again. And it's the kind of thing where when you're that young and you're constantly being taught to mistrust your body and when it's telling you not just that you're hungry or that you're full, but when it's telling you you need to stop or you're in pain, when that's overridden by people in authority, Mm -hmm. you lose so much of that mind-body connection and it takes years of unlearning to recover from that if ever and that's just one of the kinds of abuse i mean their food intake was also restricted by those coaches the program in general just had so 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 much abuse especially as the sport over time started lifting up younger and younger and younger women Like, these are young girls Mm -hmm. who are doing this. And I think many of us have also heard about Larry Nassar. Yeah. And I'm not going to dive too deep into that. There's 
a great documentary athlete a on the case and basically how 600 plus gymnasts were sexually abused during his time with the u.s women's gymnastics program but i think it's just another example of how rampant not just the harassment the media perception the underfunding but also the literal physical abuse with respect to injuries that you're told to play through injuries that you get because of food restriction and public humiliation about your weight but then also literal physical sexual abuse these girls are up against so much that it's no wonder they're quitting at like three times the rate their male counterparts and so yes Programs are publicly guaranteed with Title IX, but the NCAA, for example, doesn't mention sex basically at all to the point of almost erasure. Because I think there is this misconception that equality is sameness when it's not and girls are suffering the consequences. That's so devastating. I think also glamorizing pushing through an injury even if you can do it as like a mental thing, Mm -hmm. you should not. It's not worth it. It's not worth pushing (laughs) through just because you're tough or have high pain tolerance. We know you do. Like just, oh my God, sit down. You're a gymnast. Yes. (laughs) You you do flips on a four inch bar. Yeah. Like (laughs) we believe you. Sit down. And that should be coming from the coach. You know, the coach should be saying absolutely not you are not hurting yourself more the coach should care in that way and the sport at large should be encouraging Mm -hmm. of stepping back when you're hurt Mm -hmm. it's barbaric it's it's really it is weird to think about how normalized it is yeah because i think if that weren't currently going on and then we were presented with a news story like oh my god look at what they're doing in this on this other planet we would literally be like that is so disgusting. How how could they do that to each other? Exactly. And no, but we're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Because I feel like people right now say like, oh, well, you don't understand like how much these people have worked and this is their chance and you never know if you can get back to the Olympics. Like the stakes are so high and mm-hmm. and, 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 and. But that's a structural issue. Like, yes, the stakes should never feel so high participating in a sport that you hopefully voluntarily do and if you're at the olympics do as an amateur quote unquote like you're not getting paid to do it Mm -hmm. directly you should never be in a position where you feel like you need to push through a real injury for who for what for why no (laughs) no exactly i agree i completely agree (laughs) i know i know yeah and i feel like if we paid our professional athletes more reasonably then stakes of different trials and races and competitions would feel lower because they wouldn't be up against reduction costs like they are now Hmm. and in general we we're just not paying women like today women make up 40 percent of the athletes in the u.s and they only receive four percent of the sports coverage which is about the same as it was 30 years ago, but less than 1% of endorsement investment in professional sports goes to women. Like the front page of the sports section is more likely to feature a male sports fan than a female athlete. Really? Yeah. We like literally don't fucking invest or care about or talk about or cover or anything. Even when they're nailing it. I thought you were going to say even when they're naked. And I was like, I, I, no. I you would think <laughs> we make them wear bikinis and we don't even put them on the cover. <laughs> No, no, but even the like the women's soccer team in the U.S. is so much better 
than the male soccer team. So much. And they don't get paid as much. (sighs) And that's the thing that fucking angers me is like women, like female athletes will ask for equal pay and trolls on Twitter, (laughs) incels and misogynists are all like, (laughs) "Uh, okay, how about you ask for equal pay when we see equal work first? It's like, okay, relax. (laughs) Or they'll say, oh, like you don't bring in as much revenue. First of all, sometimes we do. But second of all, chicken or the egg, how could you have Or how could you Mm -hmm. demand equal output from someone when they are not invested in? You know, when the input is discrepant, how are you demanding equal output? Yeah. Are there, because when people say like, oh, it's because your sport is not watched as much as your male counterparts. Is that, like, are they being put on the same like prime time slot Where is that discrepancy coming from? Do people genuinely not have an interest or is it like hard to find because like you're saying chicken or the egg? Like if you don't make it available, how am I supposed to watch it? But if you don't think there's like proof of concept that people will watch it, why would I give you the primetime slot? Like, like what's going on there? Why isn't it getting seen as much? I honestly don't know. I mean, the U.S. women's soccer team, for example do generate more revenue than men. Mm-hmm. But again, they're pl- they're playing more games. Like like across multiple seasons, women played 111 games while men played 87. Mm-hmm. They won 92 of those 111 versus the men winning 46 of their 87. So that's a mm-hmm. win rate for the women of 83% versus 53% for the men. Mm-hmm. And the women make the World Cup, win the World Cup, and the men don't. And they had the highest TV ratings in this country for any U.S. soccer game. When they were in the World Cup finals in 2015. But didn't they go to Congress to ask why they weren't getting paid equally or more, (laughs) to be honest? Yeah, they did go to Congress and they were basically told that because they had more total compensation that they weren't discriminated against. And their point was, right, but we shouldn't have to be five fucking times as good to make marginally more than the men. Yeah. our If our bonuses are... Something around, let's say, like, I don't know, let's say their bonuses for winning the World Cup is $75,000. Men are getting a bonus of, like, $250,000. It's, like, not even on the same order of magnitude. Their bonuses, their payment structure. And that argument would never be given the other way around. If a winning team, by that degree especially, Mm -hmm. in another sport, if it was, like, women's basketball was getting paid more than men and... Men went to like the male NBA, you know, went to Congress and was like, why isn't our salary higher? And they said, well, because you make overall more. That that would never happen. Never fucking fly. Never. The argument would be, oh, you bring in more money. You make more money. Right. You bring in more revenue. (laughs) You play more games. You're more winning. You made it to the World Cup. Of course. Yeah. Of course you should make more money. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is like it's it's literally apples to apples and it's so discrepant. Women are doing the same job for the same employer for the same size field with the same rules, except they're doing it better and getting paid less. Yeah. It's it just like, okay, yes, maybe there were some women on the team who might have made more, more than some men on the team in a given time period. But that that doesn't prove fucking anything. That doesn't counteract the flagrant discrimination. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I feel like, okay, equal pay for equal work. So like if you're going into a job and there's one engineer who's a man and one engineer who's a woman and they're doing the same job, they should get 
should get the same salary. And if one person is creating more output and more profit, they're going to get a raise that's higher than the other person because they're Mm -hmm. doing more for the company. Mm -hmm. So I understand in a sport, if one team happens to be male and they're doing better financially than the women's team, that they should get a bigger cut of those finances Mm -hmm. and the same way the other way around. The only caveat is like, as long as both teams are being equally invested into and both are given the same opportunities. Right. Because you can't, if not, you can't, you don't know what you're controlling for. Right. And, and, and speaking of, yeah, being equally invested in, it's not just these like bonuses that are discrepant, but men were being put up in like five-star hotels for their OA games and their tournaments. And women are going to like motels and it's i'm not trying to say like oh my god like the indignity of going to a motel i've stayed at many and they're great and they're fine i mean some of them are great (laughs) Um, and some of them are more questionable but the point being like it's discrepant investment and then they're still against all odds yeah with shittier resources with shittier funding with less marketing behind them still bringing in more revenue and you're still paying them less yeah it's it's just it's ludicrous there's, there's but yes. no excuse there's no, no excuse. excuse you're cheap and you're sexist yeah and i feel like it's that's where the tool of striking is mm-hmm. helpful of at the end of the day if the players will still show up you don't have the same incentive to agree to their terms even though you should anyway because it's just the right thing to do but do I need to stay home from work for you to just treat me like a fucking human being? Like, what the fuck? And the U.S. Soccer Federation president at the time, Carlos Cardero, had campaigned on equal pay as part of his platform. And then was like, no, no, like, we've paid them technically more in absolute terms over the course of a decade and this and that. And again, completely discounting the fact that the women are winning like four World Cups, the She Believes tournaments, the mm-hmm. friendlies, the Four Nations, the this, the that. And it's just they, so disingenuous. They abs- if they're bringing in more profit, they absolutely should be making more overall because the profit wouldn't be there mm-hmm. without that team. Therefore, they should be getting a like a good chunk of the profit. That That's just how business works. Like, that's how it works everywhere else. I know. And like... The U.S. Soccer Federation then just turns around and hires lobbying firms to argue that women's teams aren't underpaid. Like, just spend that money on paying them. Just just spend that money on paying them. Don't hire the fucking lobbying firm. It's signaling, too, because it's, I think, putting up a fight. Part of it is trying to show that just because you ask for something and you have leverage doesn't mean that you're going to get, that they're just going to roll over and give it to you. Mm -hmm. Like, even though they're right, Mm -hmm. the idea of, like, oh, we'll take you to court or we'll hire lobbying firms or whatever is trying to indicate, sure, it could be cheaper to just pay you now, but what precedent are we setting for like future teams and whatever? So they think it's more worthwhile to spend the money elsewhere trying to create a precedent that's like, don't fuck with me. Like, imagine digging your heels to be on such the wrong side of history. They don't care. Yeah, just anyway. (laughs) As the U.S. women's soccer team put it, their brief in this lawsuit put it, the only way women could achieve the same overall pay as the men was by performing much better than them. That is not equal pay for equal work. Snap, snap. They did end up getting a settlement out of the lawsuit where they would have equal World Cup prize money. And this landmark deal runs through 2028 
and equalizes the World Cup prize money from FIFA, which had been a big sticking point. So I actually, I found the numbers and I misspoke earlier. The women were getting $750,000 bonus for winning the World Cup, whereas the men were getting $2.5 million if they won. And holy shit. It's weird because FIFA was giving the U.S. Soccer Federation a lump sum. And the U.S. Soccer Federation was determining, like, how to divvy that up. And then, like, even now the WNBA is fighting for just earning an equal percentage of revenue as men's teams. That's so stupid. That's a percentage. It's going to be relative anyway. I know. So you think the U.S. soccer team fight feels stupid and backwards like the WNBA I feel like is grasping at straws like they are clawing for crumbs it's it's just so obvious that it's unfair and don't our laws prohibit that like how is this possible like if a WNBA player if her jersey is sold she makes zilch nothing but if LeBron James's jersey is sold he gets a a cut wait what like they're not saying they want to be paid the same as LeBron James, but they're saying, shouldn't my contribution to this profit be considered at all? Shouldn't I get the same percentage at least? They don't get paid for merch? Mm-mm. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's it's so insulting, like the audacity of even creating these rules. I know. But also, this article in Sports Illustrated that came out on the 50th anniversary of Title IX talks about basically how some of our assumptions around revenue may be wrong. And they say, as college athletes have won the right to be paid through name, image, and likeness deals, one thing that's become clear is women's teams may be worth more than we've been led to believe. How else do you explain women's college basketball ranking second in NIL deals behind football, according to a study by NIL company Open Doors? The system is fucked. Go women. (laughs) That's the closing of all of our podcasts. (laughs) Honestly, yeah. Um, No, yeah, I think this just, it doesn't make sense to me why athletes are not seen all as athletes and that if there's going to be discrepancies that it can be based on after being given equal opportunity and equal investment what is the output Mm -hmm. are they winning more are they bringing in more Mm -hmm. then i completely understand any team getting more revenue from that because if they're not getting it someone else is Mm -hmm. that isn't the one bringing in the cash i'm happy for anyone to make the money they deserve It's when you see the opportunities aren't the same and the access is not the same. And in some cases, even after that, like with the women's soccer team, they are still doing better and bringing in more. Mm -hmm. You don't have a leg to stand on. Right. So just fucking pay people what you owe them and go home. (laughs) Yes. Agreed. Like we're saying, game recognizes game. If you are someone who considers yourself an objective sports fan who is actually interested in the feats of human athleticism, and if you're economically literate and compassionate and care about your community, you should care about making sports. And by sports, I mean like healthy sports programs accessible to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. That is just something you should be interested in. The current sports programs that we have were built by and for men. They were designed around the way a male athlete develops, but that doesn't mean it's how it has to be forevermore. Mm -hmm. This is made up. It's all made up. Mm -hmm. Basketball is made up. Football (laughs) is made up. Coaching programs and tempo runs and everything we're doing is made up Mm -hmm. and it's currently designed one way, but that doesn't mean it can't be designed 
to benefit other people. And if the sports programs we have currently aren't working or aren't taking care of every demographic, we can try something new. We can do something else. We don't have to scream at, be vitriolic toward, send death threats to athletes who are changing the sport Mm -hmm. just because they don't fit whatever mold you're used to seeing. Preach. That's how I feel. I just, I'm frustrated because I know I didn't talk about trans athletes in female sports, but the Leah Thomas conversation has reached such a fever pitch that I don't even want to give it an ounce of my breath. But it is, I will say, so facially freaking obvious that the people who are upset about Leah Thomas are bigoted reactionaries because not once have they demonstrated that they give an ounce of a shit Mm -hmm. about women's sports until now. Mm -hmm. They just feel like hating on people who are disrupting their understanding of gender. Mm -hmm. Like genuinely until we see injury rates and attrition rates and eating disorder rates go down dramatically and the number of female coaches go up dramatically and the pay go up dramatically. Like I cannot be convinced that those people care about women's sports. I just can't. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) i have no words left (laughs) i I have no words left my brain is like sputtering and not functioning (laughs) my brain let's say like the maiden in its last leg is filling with water and drowning quickly and i need to tend to it so that's what i'm off to do Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn.